Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. Welcome to Nightlight, everybody. Thank you so much for joining me today. This is this is a very special show. Uh, it, it holds a great deal of meaning to me because of my my continuing fascination with ancient Egypt and and the fact that Andrew Collins is one of the most profound writers of, of the day. I do believe his ability to take history and weave it into almost a story makes it almost as though you're reading a, a fictional story because you become a part of the entire process. And, and yet what he has done is taken as many facts and, as he could find and, and present them to you so that you are getting a better understanding of history. Um, today's book that we're talking about is The First Female Prophet, Sobeknefru, Goddess of the Seven Stars. And... It's a book that I highly, highly, highly recommend because once you get involved in it, you'll, you'll find yourself saying over and over again, why wasn't this part of history? Why is all we hear about, you know, King Tut and then, of course, the stuff from the Bible? Um, piecing together the lost history of the first female pharaoh and represents the first comprehensive biography of Sobeknefru, um, he uses every text and monument that concerns her and her time and power. He examines her achievements as a ruler, the political and religious issues of her age, the temples and ruins associated with her, and her continuing impact on ancient Egypt after her reign. He explores her relationship with her brother, her sister, and her father, who is regarded as one of the most beloved pharaohs of the Middle Kingdom, and he examines her untimely end, the fate of her body, and the cult that developed in her name. Discussing her magical beliefs and practices, he shows how they centered on the crocodile god, Sobek, the hippopotamus goddess Neith, and Sekhmet, the goddess presiding over divine powers. He reveals also how, she's, how her suspected pyramid was positioned to align this, with the setting uh, sun of El... I'm going to mispronounce it, Eltonin, the brightest star in the constellation of Draco, seen in ancient Egypt as the celestial form of Sobek. Examining the modern-day resurrection of her among the occultics and mystics of Victorian London, he shows how she is the true inspiration behind every ancient female queen who comes back to life after her tomb is found, as featured first in Bram Stoker's shocking 1903 novel, The Jewel of Seven Stars, and later in several modern blockbuster movies, revealing how she has left a lasting impact on culture. Through the ages, despite being nearly erased from history, he shows how her continuing legacy is perhaps ultimately her true resurrection. You have to read this book. It's it's an amazing story. It has it has intrigue. It has it has so much in it that that should be a part of our history and isn't. Um, 
I, I really I invite you to go pick it up and read it because you will be fascinated with it, and you'll want to dig deeper. Um, Andrew has done a magnificent job with this, and hopefully it will bring her more and more into um, an understanding of her time and her cosmology as well. So welcome to the show, Andrew. I'm so delighted you can be with us today. Um, no, it's my pleasure to be here. Thank you. Um, I just, I, this this story fascinated me. Um, and she was, she she came way before I whose name I stutter over, and of course Cleopatra. But she really, I, I do believe, in spite of her, where she was as far as the daughter of the of the pharaoh, she believed that she was destined to be the pharaoh, and and that that was her whole life, and it was amazing how the intrigue with which she got there, and and what she did when she became pharaoh. I I just I don't know really kind of where to begin. Um, how what would you say? was the most important legacy legacy she leaves behind um well as you say it's it's quite a long and complex story so i think probably the best thing to do is to take it back to her youth um i mean her name is sobek neferu that's her given name um she wasn't destined to uh, rise to the throne she was probably third in line and, and arguably probably you know much further back if there were other children that maybe died in uh, at, a, at a young age but she was the daughter of a very uh, successful pharaoh by the name of Amenemhet the third and he ruled for 45 years and it was a very productive uh, very successful um period of Egyptian history that was known as the Middle Kingdom and um, the dynasty was that of the 12th uh, and it's coming towards the end of that dynasty and it would seem that Sobek Nofru was probably destined to become a temple priestess um, that's you know what the indications of various Egyptologists have, have concluded um, and it looked as if there was no way she would ever become ruler of the country and her elder sister whose name was Neferu Tar um, was chosen to become the next pharaoh now this would have been unique in itself because there had not been any um, woman who had taken the, uh, the, the, the thrones of upper and lower Egypt you know, the, and worn the crowns of, of each one up to that point there had been women who had uh, become uh, in charge of the country but for reasons which were product of circumstances like you know the husband was was fighting in a war in another country or they were regent to a younger um you know king or whatever but um Nefu, neferu Tar was going to be um, the pharaoh and it seemed as if she was going to uh, be sided with her younger brother whose name was Amenemet the Fault. Now, these were very young people. I mean, probably no more than, than 16 to 18 years old. Um, and they would, they would be in charge of, of, of the country. They would, they would rule side by side. But then tragedy struck. Um, Nefertar was, um, was killed somehow. Now, whether she died through accidental causes, whether she, she died through illness, or whether she was murdered... Uh, is a, a matter of, of debate, really. There's, there's nothing that really suggests that. But that would seem to have thrown all the plans, you know, for, for the future of Egypt in abeyance. So what they did was to put the younger male king on the throne, who was Amenemet the Fourth, and he ruled for the next nine years. But he would seem to have ruled alongside his own sister. I mean, a direct blood sister who was Sobek Neferu. Now it would seem as if Sobek Nofru was probably only the half sister of Neferu Tar. Um, but anyway, Sobek Nofru rules alongside her brother and you know, I mean ultimately they were they were probably man and wife. 
Um, and for a while, things went along okay. But the, the, the situation in Egypt was beginning to show signs that something was going wrong. Because uh, from the time of, of their father onwards, there was an open borders policy to Semitic peoples coming into the country from the Canaan and also from the Egyptian Sinai. And there were many, many thousands of, of, of these immigrant peoples coming in. And they were, um, you know, in, in various different jobs from in the army, the navy, personal guards to officials, to, um, to workers in engineering projects, uh, to possibly even pyramid builders. Um, and it would seem officials in the royal court. Um, and to some Egyptian nation nationalists, it looked as if Egypt could well lose its individual sovereignty. And it would look as if they went to Sobek Nofru, who by this time, it would seem, had fallen out with her brother and that the two were on different paths um, and basically said to her, look, we will support your claim to the throne. You know, we know you've got aspirations to the throne, provided that you change the political situation in the country. You close the borders, you know, you... You, you stamp down your authority in the country and try and retain the Egyptian sovereignty. And, but to do this, your brother must die. And so he was murdered, almost certainly. I mean, I, I'm 99.9% I'm .9 certain that this was the case. And she then took the throne for four years. And during this time, she obviously did close the borders. She stopped trading with the Sinai uh, and probably Canaan as well. Um, and additionally, she groomed two young children who were probably the children, the, 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 the offspring of her brother. And they then became the first two kings of the next dynasty, which would be the 13th dynasty. And basically at this point, I think that she had angered um, certain factions, almost certainly one or other of the priesthoods, I think it was probably the priesthood of Heliopolis, um, uh, which was just where Cairo is today. Um, they were the cult of the sun god Ra and his creator form, Artem, and they were strongly linked by this time with the incoming Semitic population. You know, they supported them and, and the, that, that incoming support uh, population supported them. So they were getting a lot of um, a, a lot of power, basically something that they'd lost uh, hundreds of years earlier to the cult of Armand, the patron god of Thebes. So they were in full support of what was going on in the country and what her brother had been doing. So that when the brother was murdered, they were against Sobek Nofru. But there's nothing that they could have done on their own to start with. But then what starts happening is that the Nile floodwaters suddenly are extremely low in the third year of Sobek Nofru's reign. And they use this as an excuse to point the finger and basically say, you know, look what this woman is doing to the country. You know, unless you um, change back the policies to those of your brother and your father, then, you know, essentially, you know, we'll come after you, essentially. Um, but she stuck to her guns. But it seemed as if eventually they were going to come for her. And from the evidence that I've put together, I would say that she committed suicide, satisfied that she had created a, a situation which in ancient Egypt was known as Mart, M-A-A-T, which means divine order through truth and justice. And I think that she took her own life, uh, having already initiated the 13th dynasty, and that was the end of that. However, of course, this is just the beginning of the story because those Egyptian nationalists, the predictions that they'd made came true because within just two to three generations, Egypt did indeed fall um, to incoming warlords known as the Hyksos or Shepherd Kings who came in and completely trashed the country, established their own dynasty, which was the 15th dynasty, which took over from... A, another dynasty that had run concurrently with the 13th, which was the 14th, and that was a Semitic 
dynasty, either of Semitic kings or certainly kings that were sympathetic to the Semitic cause. Um, and the 13th dynasty had to retreat down to southern Egypt, where it set up at Thebes um, in the southern part. And basically what happened was that they just bided their time down there. The 13th dynasty eventually became the 17th dynasty, and they rose up eventually against the Hyksos, um, particularly two brothers, Camos and Amos, uh, raised an army against the Hyksos and drove them out of the country and thus began Egypt's new kingdom that started with the 18th dynasty. And of course, during that time, you've got all of the great kings like Hatshepsut, Tutmosis, um, Amenhotep the, the, oh, III, Akhenaten, Nefertiti, um, Ramesses, Seti, you know, all these great kings will follow now. And without what Sobek Nofru had done during her reign, none of this would have happened, in my opinion. Um, in other words, Egypt could easily just have become just another city-state under the control of the ruling bodies of Canaan. Um, and, you know, basically the world would almost certainly be a different place now. The only problem is that instead of being applauded for what she did, she was actually blamed for instigating the, this dark age of Egyptian history, which we remember under the name of the Second Intermediate Period. Uh, and we can see this, for instance, if we go to Abydos, the temple of Seti I at Abydos, and if you look into this, there is a, a, a wall that's got a, a king list. It's got the, the royal cartouches of all the kings from the very beginning of dynastic history, supposedly all the way through to Seti the, Seti the First. And Seti is there with his young son, Ramesses, the future Ramesses the Second. And he's like showing him, you know, all these great kings that come before them and said, look, you know, one day you, your name will be added to that list. The only problem is that if you look closely at this list, it has all the kings up to and including Amenemet IV, that's Sobek Nofru's brother, and then there's a huge gap from there to the first king of the 18th dynasty, who is Amos. So what's happened to all these kings in between? Now, I can understand that Seti and the country as a whole might want to forget all of the confusing period of the second intermediate period. But why did they not have Sobek Nofru's name there? Why, why, why did it start with her when she, in theory, had nothing to do with this dark age? And the answer almost certainly is that they, be, they believed that it began with her and that she must have initiated this dark age of Egyptian history probably not helped by the priesthood of, um, of Ra, Heliopolis, who, you know, clearly hated her, I think, and would have done whatever they could to have tarred her memory. And for this reason, her entire reign was completely ob obliterated from history. Yes, she was mentioned in a couple of king lists here and there, but it's clear that others... She was completely whitewashed and that the normal stories that would be associated with a king, you know, a, a pharaoh, whether it be male or female, were just not there. Um, and the strange thing is, is that that's the state of play right the way through until the 19th century when the earliest Egyptologists go to Egypt and they start uncovering the different temples they do find reference to her. They find stone blocks with her name. Um, and they start wondering who this woman is. I mean, it's quite clear she was a pharaoh. She ruled Upper and Lower Egypt. And yet there is essentially nothing about her. And, of course, this rose a lot of uh, speculation about, you know, was it something to do with her religious cult, which was associated with the, um, the, the god Sobek, the crocodile, um, who was an incredibly ancient deity associated with the northern part of the sky. Um, was it to do with that? Was it, you know, to do with her deeds? And speculation started to arose, particularly in books 
by the likes of um, Heinrich Bruch, uh, quite a, a well-known 19th century Egyptologist. Um, and these ideas were eventually picked up by a mythologist and more speculative writer on ancient Egypt by the name of Gerald Massey. Uh, he wrote two very good books towards the end of, of the Victorian era, uh, one of which was called The, the Book of Beginnings, uh, Book of the Beginnings, which came out in 1881. There was one uh, a little later on, Natural Genesis, I think, came out a few years later. And, I mean, they talked about Sobek Nofra, and they speculated that she was like some kind of avatar of this extremely ancient star cult, and that the 13th dynasty, which she clearly initiated, where various of the kings bore the name Sobek-Hotep, which means basically Sobek is uh, pleased or Sobek is at peace, um, that this was like this continuance of this cult. Um, and I think that it was at this point that an Irish uh, writer by the name of Bram Stoker, who had this uh, hit just a few years earlier called Dracula, thought that Nofru could become a very good character in an Egyptian novel. So he wrote that and uh, he made her into uh, a person who he, he uh, an antagonist who he referred to as Queen Tira, T-A-R-A, um, and had her coming back from the dead after her tomb is found uh, and wreaking havoc in modern day England. Um, and as I said, this was a book that came out in 1903 and it went on to influence various blockbuster movies, uh, the latest of which was The Mummy in 2017, starring Tom Cruise, but also 1980s uh, The Awakening, uh, which starred Charlton Heston and Susanna York, which I believe is the best adaptation of Bram Stoker's book. And, um, you know, there are various others, and obviously, you know, we can talk about them. Um, so that's basically her story. But, the, but more than that is that, Certain occultists have recognised how important she was as this avatar of this very ancient star cult. People like Kenneth Grant, who featured her in various of his non-fiction books and also in his um, fiction books as well, a book called The Stellar Load. Um, and, yeah, I mean, she's an, she's an enigma. But if you do look into her, her story is there. I mean, you know, there's enough monuments, enough... Um, uh, you know, artefacts that have been found, um, enough stories that are, that are there in other cultures like ancient Greece, um, in um, Arabic culture, Egyptian Arabic culture coming from the earlier uh, Coptic Christian tradition in Egypt um, and, you know, various other things that you can start to piece together everything that happened in Sobek Nefru's life. And, I mean, she's a remarkable person. That's all you can say, and her story needs to be told. Well, I think one of the other things that fascinated me as well is that, that she um, she had a, a – there, there's a, a lake between Upper and Lower Egypt in there someplace, and she created uh, a, a sanctuary, a temple, a, whatever you want to call it, called the Labyrinth, and – in many ways, I, it, it felt to me as though she was she was trying to pull all of the gods together and then have a, a singular god ahead of all of them. And in a, in a way, she was she was suggesting suggesting a monotheistic practice. Um, and and the the labyrinth it, it was fa it was fascinating. I I don't know why, but but. It never occurred to me that all of the different provinces had um, a god that, that was the god that was over that particular province. And what she did was she pulled, I think it was 12, the the 12 gods of the different provinces, uh, provinces had little sanctuaries. And then there was, of course, the crocodile god above them all. So she was almost hitting into monotheistic things way before... Um, you know, Akhenaten, for sure. Yeah, oh, definitely. Yeah, I mean, she was definitely trying to create a form of monotheism. Um, I mean, it was different to what Akhenaten did. I mean, he basically banned all gods. Everybody. And basically yeah. said that, um, you know, you can only, 
really uh, venerate uh, the autumn disc, the sun disc. But she did it differently. What she did was to basically say that, look, you know, you've all got your, your local gods. There was actually 42, by the way. And they relate to the 42, what's called the nuns or the districts of, of Egypt in Upper and Lower Egypt. I think there's 20 in one and 22, sorry, 20 in, 20 in one and then 22 in the, in, in the other part of the country. And each of them had their own local gods. But what she said was that the spirit of those gods is Sobek. So that uh-huh. what I want you to do is to come to the centre of Egypt, which was this massive, great complex that she created, which has come down to us under the name the Egyptian Labyrinth, which was a, a place called Hawara um, in the Fayum Oasis, which is about 60 miles, I think it's 60 miles, to the south of Giza. Um, and it's a huge, beautiful, you know, fertile area. And she creates this huge complex, which, by the way, evolved out of the funerary complex that was built for her father, Amenemet III, including a pyramid there, the Pyramid of Huarat. Um And she seemed to have made, that's the only word I can use, all of the priests and officials to come from all of the different noms to venerate Sobek in their own particular chapel and that there were at least, you know, 42 chapels there um, and arguably many hundreds more, but at least 42. um, And where these priests would come to venerate their God under the form of Sobek. Um, And so, yeah, I mean, she was creating this monotheism and I mean, there's no question that she made Sobek the state God. Um, In other words, you know, the main god of the dynasty during her reign. Now, she—I mean, she didn't just adopt this god herself. I mean, it had been, the, the importance of it had been gradually building since the beginning of the twelfth, right from the very first king of the dynasty, who was Amenemet the first. He was the one that really set things up in the Fayum. But the strength and power of that base in the Fayum increased all the way up to and including the reign of Sobek Nofru. Although what's so interesting, and this is one of the reasons why she almost certainly fell out with her brother, is that he turned his back on the Fayum. He turned his back on the cult of Sobek. He had nothing to do with the labyrinth, his father's funeral complex. And in inscriptions, it's very clear that his patron god is not Sobek at all, but Artum, the creator form of the sun god Ra, which of course is associated with the temple at Heliopolis, temple complex at Heliopolis. He was clearly working with them and promoting them as his personal, you know, god and, 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 and you know, cult, basically. And it would seem that his idea was to embrace the entire Semitic population and to build a completely separate kingdom. So this would have been, you know, not northern, you know, sorry, upper or lower Egypt, but a separate kingdom in the Sinai that would have been focused around a religious centre known as Sarabat el Kadam, uh, which is like this this sort of hill complex that has a cave and a temple associated with the the, the, the goddess Hathor. Um, and a few other dates, but but particularly it's particularly connected with Hathor, and it's in this area that all of the really rich mines were, that um, where, where they mined um, malachite, copper, and turquoise, which were brought back in caravan trains uh, into Egypt, you know, to sort of stock up, you know, with the, the raw resources and uh, economy of Egypt. Um, I mean. This is what he was doing. So that, and I get the feeling that what happened was that because he was so young, he was being seriously influenced by the old retainers that were still there from his father's reign. Um, and that they were pulling him in whatever direction that they wanted. And this was something that Sobek Nofru couldn't handle. And I think that, as I said, in the first few years of their, of, of their joint reign, 
I think that they were incredibly close. I mean, obviously, brother and sister. Um, but something went wrong. And I think it, it had to do with the, the, the political situation in the country, the policies that they both wanted to follow, which were diametrically opposed. And, uh, you know, there was great concern over, you know, the fate of the country, the destiny of Egypt, its sovereignty as a whole. And this is why I think that these Egyptian nationalists probably came to Sobek Nofru and said, look, something's got to be done. Would you help us? And she said yes. And one of the reasons she said yes is because, you know, they said, look, you know, we will support your claim to the throne. You know, we, you know, you, you, as far as we're concerned, you can take the, the throne immediately. He's dead. And this was something which I think had come because in the early part of her life, there's no way that she would ever have been able to take the throne. And the reason for this is that the mother of a pharaoh is seen as the incarnation of Hathor, the goddess Hathor. Her name means the house of Horus, Hat-Hor. And so in other words, the firstborn son that comes out of her womb is a divine child an incarnation of Horus, who is clearly destined to rule the country. So anything else is a complication. In other words, you know, if that first child dies or whatever, then it starts becoming complicated. But when you have a daughter, when quite clearly it was the, the you know, the boys that would, that would reign, not, not the daughters, then it's quite clear that, you know, a daughter of, of a pharaoh is never likely to become ruler. But then we, you have Amenemet III proclaiming his elder, let's presume, elder daughter, Neferu Tar, as the, the next monarch of the country, and even allowing her to put her name in a royal cartouche. Now, these are the ovals that go around your name if you are the ruler. And this was, this was unique. This had not happened before. That's how strongly committed Amenemet III was for his own daughter to rule the country. And I think the reason for this is not because he was trying to be progressive necessarily. It was because she was clearly older and more mature than his son, who was probably a few years younger. He, I mean, he could have only been 14 to 16. And this, I think is the reason why he felt it was better having the daughter. But there you've got Sobek Nofra in the background thinking, well, hold on, you know, if a, if, a, if a girl is about to become monarch, then I could become monarch as well, because I'm a girl as also. So, you know, I mean, it would be wrong to point fingers, um, but the only person that actually stood to benefit from Neferu Tar's death was her sister, Sobek Neferu. Um, and that, you know, is, is a point to, to just to remember, particularly as any children that Neferu Tar and Amenemet the Fourth would have produced would surely and obviously have become the rulers that would have followed. In other words, there would never have been any place for Sobek Nofru. And I think what happened to Sobek Nofru was that she underwent some unorthodox rites of passage. Um, and I think that it, it, it may have been associated with the same people that came to see her. It may not have been. And these, I think, were associated with the goddess Hathor. And they were similar to what's known as the, the Hebsed festival that every pharaoh has to undergo if they have ruled Egypt for a period of about 30 years. Um, what happens is that they, they have to go undergo these physical and mental trials to prove that they are worthy, both in body and mind, to continue to rule the country. And it's done publicly. I mean, huge courts are built for this. There's one, for instance, at Saqqara, uh, near the city of Memphis in uh, northern Egypt. And what's so interesting is that Sobek Nofru, there's, a, there's one statue of her, that where she's wearing the Hebsed cloak. Now, it's been suggested by Egyptologists that this was actually 
her coronation cloak. Now, what I mean by that is she was wearing the Hebstead cloak at her coronation, but this is ridiculous. Well, not ridiculous, it's just totally, you know, unique because no no monarch had ever done this before. Why would she be wearing a cloak, which in theory you only get if you undergo these, you know, trials and tribulations after a reign of 30 years? And the answer is that she's clearly trying to make a statement and saying, look, you know, I have proved myself to the gods, in particular Hathor, who presides over the pharaoh and whether he continues or she continues to rule after the Hetzeb festival. And therefore, that gives me permission to rule this country. And I think that's the reason why she was shown at her coronation wearing the Hebstead cloak. And I mean, it's a very, very interesting statue, her headdress, which involves uh, a double vulture and um, uh, a snake, the array of snake is also very unique as well. Um, so she, she wanted to do things differently. And I mean, hopefully we'll come on to some of the monuments associated with her in a minute. Well, absolutely. And, and I think the other thing that, that, that I kept feeling, and I don't know if it was, you know, it, it's a feeling and it's like thousands of years old, so I have no idea how valid it is. But it felt like she was, when when pharaohs are are you know ascend to the throne, they usually you know they're men and they usually you know they they have armies and they're focused on you know armies and and keeping the the country whole or or going out and and expanding the country. She felt more as though her focus was a more spiritual focus as 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 far as you know the temples and 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 everything and and I I think it was. It was fascinating for me that, that it's almost like she was bred for the temple and that, that she tried to take that into being a pharaoh as well and that being her focus because it, it did seem as though she was more focused on the spiritual essence of, the, of, of her power rather than anything else. And what, what was interesting was that there was a, uh, a place for her to be buried in her father's tomb, and then there was another, a smaller pyramid that was constructed for her as well, and yet she wasn't in either place, and that it was important to smuggle her out, I guess, after she committed suicide, and and committing suicide at that time frame was um, kind of an accepted thing. It wasn't outrageous it was you know my work here is done and i can go to wherever i go when i when i pass over and so they did sneak her her out and i i think they they are now searching for her actual resting place someplace very close to to where um where she committed suicide um sort of yeah um i mean she had a pyramid, and so did her brother. They, the, these, there were two pyramids next to each other. They were at a place called Masguna, uh, which is immediately south of the more well-known pyramid field of Dashur. Um, and they're called Masguna North and Masguna South. Both of them, interestingly, were absolutely destroyed in antiquity. I don't just mean that the blocks were taken away to, to be used for somewhere else. I mean that they were absolutely destroyed. I mean, just leaving this huge field of chips of, of, of limestone, um, which is very unusual. I mean, you know, it's almost like somebody wanted to destroy it. And Sobek Nofru, who was destined for the north um, of the two pyramids, um, never was buried there. I mean, you know, in 1910, it was investigated by a British Egyptologist named Ernest Mackay, and there was the most complex superstructure beneath the ground in the bedrock. But it had weird, weird peculiarities, um, including the fact that it had beautiful white quartzite sarcophagus chamber. Uh, I mean, like a huge, huge block that had been carved out into to create this, 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 this chamber to contain the sarcophagus, the canopic jars to move around and whatever. And yet the strange thing was, it had, the whole thing had been painted red. And I don't just mean for aesthetic reasons. 
I mean, behind, you know, places where blocks that fitted in, um, you know, were, were as well. Everything was red, and there's no need for this to have happened. And, you know, Ernest Mackay said, you know, I, this is strange. I've never seen this before. So, you know, what was going on? Well, red is the colour of blood, obviously, but it's also the colour of a power or force known as Sekem. Sekem means divine might or divine power. Um, and it's the root behind the name of the goddess Sekhmet. Um, Sekhmet simply is like the female personification of this false. And it's seen in terms of a goddess with a, the, the head of a lioness. Uh, and she is the terrifying form of the goddess Hathor. And Hathor, I am certain, was Sobet Nofru's personal god. I'm, I'm certain of that. I mean, absolutely. And so basically what she was doing here is she was not only aligning with the force of Sekhmet, and we know this because the name of her funeral complex was Sekem Sobek Nefro, which means the powers of, of Sobek Nefro. So there's no question that she was aligning with this energy. But more than that, I think that it was to frighten people off if they tried to tomb rob the place. So this was the original idea. So that they would go in there, they would see the walls were just like dripping of blood, and they would think, I'm out of here, basically. I mean, that, I think that this <laughs> yeah. is at least one of the ideas for it. But, I mean, so where was she buried? Well, firstly, her, she was dedicated, I think, to the fact that her, her patron god was Sobek, the crocodile. He was the son of the goddess Neith, who was shown as a standing hippopotamus in this area, this region. And you would see the two, you would see the crocodile on the back of the, of the, of the hippopotamus. Um, and these were associated with a particular area of the sky connected with three constellations, Draco, Ursa Minor, and Ursa Major. These revolved around the northern celestial pole every night. And if you go onto the north side of the Great Lake of the Fayum, uh, which is currently known as Burkitt Column, but anciently was known as, as Lake Morris, um, there is a strange megalithic temple made of polygonal blocks. It's got no inscriptions on it, but I have found, uh, well, I mean, not personally, but I mean, I found and investigated two um, partial inscriptions, both of which I think show her name or, you know, partially are, are inscriptions in her name showing that she was associated with this building. She didn't build it, I don't think. I think she reconstructed its interior because the, the interior matches that of another 12th century building on the south side of the Fayum Great Lake, called a place called Medinet Mardi. And this was a temple of the crocodile. It was a temple of Sobek. And all around it, was not only old king evidence of old kingdom activity from about fourth dynasty, but also there were stone tools going back at least 5000 BC. So this was seen as a place of the ancestors. This temple is aligned to the setting of the star Eltonen in Draco. It was possibly the eye of the crocodile Sobek. Now that building is aligned perfectly to the pyramid of Mezguna North which also targets the setting of Eltonen in Draco through its placement in a line with two other pyramids from the 4th dynasty. One is the Red Pyramid of Snufferu at Dashur. The other one is the Great Pyramid itself of Khufu at Giza. Those three pyramids are in a perfect line and they mark the setting of this particular star. So, in my opinion, she saw this megalithic temple, which is at a site called um, uh, Casa El Saga, as a place of the ancestors, a place that she could connect with her own, you know, dynastic ancestors in the fourth dynasty. And I think that that's where we should be looking for her tomb. Um, I think she was buried in secret. Um, I, whether she underwent exactly the rites that a pharaoh should have undergone over a period of 70 days 
I have no idea. Nobody does. What happened to her body, whether it still exists today, we don't know. I think it was probably placed within a tomb that was probably destined for somebody else initially. Obviously, similar things happened at the end of the Amarna period uh, with, you know, let's say Tutankhamun or Akhenaten or uh -huh. Nefertiti, you know, being possibly, you know, reburied in, um, oh, not so much Tutankhamun, but probably Akhenaten and Nefertiti in the Valley of the Kings. Um, and I think that that's where we should look for. And if anybody's interested in this and they want to come with us, you know, to Egypt to try and look for her tomb, uh, we're going there in in November as part of a tour with Megalithomania, with Hugh Newman, uh, JJ Ainsworth, uh -huh. Yusuf Arwin. All details are on my website, andrewcollins.com. Um, and of course, you know, you can read about all of this in The First Female Pharaoh, which is available, obviously, from Amazon or any good online bookstore. Well, I think that that she, there's something very special about her. Um, you know, all, there's stuff special about all the pharaohs, probably, but but she was actually <clears throat> an inspiration to female pharaohs that came after her. Um, you know, it was it was obvious that her power, her influence, her energy is is something that had such shoot also. Um, yeah. You know, there was That's there correct. there was. She, she was. She looked at her stuff. She knew of her. She was impressed by her, yep. and and so there. There definitely is that that element of there's something different about her. And you know, she did. She yep. did have um, temples um, that she built. Um, so so that you know, she did. It, she only ruled for four years, right? A little over four yep. years. She was, but so, clearly she was around an influence in Egypt for an awful lot longer because, as I said, I think that she either officially or unofficially ruled alongside her brother for eight to nine years anyway. In other words, I mean, there is no way that she would have been able to take the throne if she had not ruled with her brother. You know, there's no way that some, you know, random princess could suddenly take over the country and be crowned you know, with, 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 with the crowns of Upper and Lower Egypt. It just wouldn't have happened. They they had to have already known that she could be a ruler. And the only way that that would have happened is because they'd seen her ruling alongside her brother. Well, actually, you know, I, I truly think that she, she believed that she was destined for this and that um, it was it was unusual that, you know, when when we think about somebody committing suicide rather than being killed, um, you know, it 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 doesn't feel like it was a. It felt like she she flowed into it that she didn't, um, she wasn't forced to kill herself that she was given a choice be, kill her you know, commit suicide or be killed but, and, and you know my thought would have been hey I'll just leave the country, but, but there was a certain amount of this is. My destiny, it felt yeah. like that, that went went along with her. So that she she had made her mark, and it was an impressive mark. I mean, when you consider that that here we are, thousands and thousands of years later, bringing up her story yet again, um, I have found that that when stories repeat themselves, when they keep coming back and hitting us in the face, that there is something more profound to the story than than we initially saw or see and that there's more here that, that needs to be uncovered. And, and finding her, her burial place will be fascinating. Yeah, certainly. I mean, um, yeah, I mean, it's almost like her story is already out there in the collective unconscious. Um, uh -huh. You know, probably not just because of, of her as a, as a spirit, but the fact that she obviously would have had followers you know, kept alive her cult for hundreds of years, um, presumably with some knowledge of where she was buried. Um, and, uh, you know, once they started seeing that her story was being suppressed, this is something that, you know, it, it is going to seriously frustrate them on a collective level as well. And it, it's almost like that story then becomes impinged, not impinged, but, you know, sort of, you, you know, sort of, 
contained within the, the collective unconscious and somehow we eventually get onto it. And, you know, what's so weird is that so many people claim to have psychic experiences with Sobek Nofru. And, you know, these are dreams, these are visions. Um, now, I mean, you know, maybe some of this is just their imagination, of course, but some of them have never really heard of her before. And, I mean, an example of this is Kenneth Grant, the occultist. Um, in the mid-1950s, he had a magical group called the New Isis Lodge. And they would meet and, you know, communicate and with spirits and whatever. And on one particular occasion, uh, this spirit entity, which they believed was either Sobek Nofru or some kind of incarnation of hers, came through. And although, you know, that, that was it really, it somehow had a serious impact on Kenneth Grant. And one of the reasons why he featured her so strongly in his various non-fiction books and in one particular novelette, you know, called The, the Stella Lode. Um, and I find this, this, this intriguing because you don't find similar stories, or, or not so often at least, connected with the other female pharaohs of Egypt like Hatshepsut or Nefertiti or Cleopatra. And even though they are household names, then they're not necessarily there on a psychic level. Now, as I said, I'm not therefore saying you know, that these, these experiences are you know, psychic or that the spirits are coming back or whatever. I just find it intriguing that Sobek Nofru seems to have her own magical current. And this is something that, as I said, has been recognised you know, by occultists, by psychics and whatever across the years um, and has a resonance. In, in fact, you know, I have to admit that, you know, it was it was these type of experiences that got my interest in her. I thought, well, who is this woman? Why is she so important? And why is it that she seems to be able to appear to people in dreams? Uh, and even during the writing of, of this book, which I would say is unquestionably her first ever biography, you know, at some moments, I, I almost felt a presence, you know, behind me, you know, almost uh -huh. sort of guiding my words. And and although that was probably just my imagination, you know, based on her reputation, uh, it, it's an interesting fact, particularly as I think without her reign, Egypt would definitely have fallen or it would certainly be in an in, a much different place. And that could have actually had an impact upon the rest of the ancient world and by virtue of that you know the the, the civilization we have today i mean certainly we were, we wouldn't have art deco because obviously that only really came into existence after the discovery of tutankhamun's tomb and tutankhamun would never have existed so you know it, it's just a weird thought that our own world now would probably be different if she had not done what she needed to do during her reign and created this state called Mart, you know, divine order through truth and justice. Mm -hmm. Well, it does, um, you know, she did have the training in the temple, and so yeah. that that is a spiritual uh, guide for her. And and it does it does make one wonder what would have happened had she not had had. Egypt not gone through that that time of, of famine and everything, and and she could have continued her reign. What would have happened to Egypt and and to the surrounding areas, being guided by someone who had a more spiritual outlook on 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 life and and what the country should be, as opposed to let's go conquer another country. Um, I, you know, it, it's kind of like her work wasn't quite finished, and she keeps peeking back into history from time to time to see if if there's there's an audience for her philosophy, so to speak. Yeah, I mean, you know, you've, you've hit on something I think quite important by sort of saying that her spiritual background decided on a lot of her actions during her reign, and I think that's correct because you know, she did focus almost solely on Egypt and some might say even in just a particular area of Egypt, which was the Fayum. Um, I mean, uh -huh. there are no real monuments associated with her 
outside of the Fayum area other than a couple of temples just outside of it. And also in the Nile Delta, there was unquestionably a temple uh, of, um, of Sobek in which there were various statues of, of Sobek Nofru. Uh, these were investigated in 1940. Unfortunately, they, they've gone missing, so they don't exist today. Um, and what's so interesting is that this very area where this temple was in the Nile Delta uh, at a place called Tel El Daba um, is actually where the Hyksos had their power base. Um, and it was also the strongest area of the Semitic settlers into the country. Um, and it was, you know, it actually became the administrative centre of the, uh, the Nile Delta. And there is some indication that she actually was brought up in that area. You know, that that certainly, you know, let's say maybe in the summers or something, I don't know, you know, she was there. I mean, and that, you know, she may have even grown up alongside some of these Semitic families, you know, and their children and clearly their officials. And this actually brings us on very quickly. I know we're probably out of time now, but to the fact that, you know, in biblical tradition, the, mo the person most associated with this epoch of Egyptian history is Joseph. Um, and Joseph is somebody that was sold into bondage in Egypt, um, but then obviously rose up to become quite literally the vizier of the country, the second in command, after he was able to successfully interpret the dreams of Pharaoh um, and stop the country you know, falling into a state where it wasn't ready for a famine. Um, so, you know, because of this, he, he rose to power. Now, my colleague David Roll um, in, in his books has shown that Joseph uh, lived in Egypt during the time of Amenemet III, Amenemet IV, Sobek Nofru, and possibly even the first two kings of the 13th dynasty. So there's every reason to suggest that Sobek Nofru knew Joseph. Now, I'm not saying Joseph was necessarily a real person or whatever. He was probably a composite character based on the the actions and activities of the Semitic-speaking peoples in Egypt at this time. But it is actually really important to remember that Joseph was in the household of Potiphar, who was the high priest of Heliopolis, and that uh -huh. he actually married the daughter of Potiphar, um, which shows very clearly that if he can be seen as a, as a real character, then he was very much connected with the, the, the priesthood of Heliopolis. And this shows something which obviously I've previously mentioned, that the temple of Heliopolis was very closely connected with the Semitic population. In fact, Heliopolis itself was at the end of at least two trade routes coming in from Canaan, um, which is clearly somewhere that the Semitic peoples would have settled um, you know, other than the Nile Delta itself, which of course was a little way to the north. It would not, <clears throat> given her training, given her philosophy, it would not, it would not shock me nor surprise me <clears throat> if in the area where the labyrinth is, there is not a power center of some sort. Um, you know, and I know that takes us into the metaphysical and away from the scientific and archaeological, but it would seem to me that given her training, given her history, that there is most probably um, ruins of some sort that have not yet been discovered, that there is an energetic portal there, and... Um, I wouldn't be surprised if at some point in time it's discovered to bring her back into the fore of um, people investigating, you know, the cosmology of that particular time. Yeah, I mean, uh, if I had to, if I had to, you know, say where that was, I'm pretty certain it is this megalithic temple at um, Casa El Saba, yeah. that, that area is so strange so interesting um, and would have been seen not just as a place of the ancestors 
but it was also the site of some kind of snake god, a creator in the form of a snake. Uh-huh. Uh, I go into I, this in the book. I, I would. So I, I, I would. Really important. Yeah, I, I would bet money that there there is something yet to be discovered in that area. Um, but you're Definitely. right. <laughs> we're 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 out of time. Um, thank you so much for 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 being with us today. I, I think this is a story that that you know um, it has no ending. There's it's only the beginning. I think that probably in the next couple of decades, her name is going to come up over and over and over again. It's going to be fascinating to see. Well, I'd like to think that that is you know going to be the case. Um, I mean, if my book has done, you know, anything towards, you know, bringing her back into the real world, then, you know, my job is done, really, I suppose. I mean, I suppose it's a case of where is she buried? You know, can we find her? Can we find her too? Uh, And I think that's something that we should be looking towards. And I would encourage archaeologists to look again at the location of the labyrinth. I mean, you know, at the moment it's just a huge field of, of, of holes that have been made across the past two centuries by various archaeologists looking, you know, to try and see if they can piece together what is there. But I think they should look harder. I mean, I think that the excavation oh, yeah, should I, continue I, in that area. I mean, LIDAR or, or ground-penetrating radar or there's, you know, and this is just my opinion from the energetics that I work with, but there's something there yet to be uncovered. Um, but your your book is fascinating. I think everyone should read it. It's an education and it's an adventure story that, that doesn't have an ending quite yet, which is even more exciting. Um, I can't thank you enough for sharing your time with us. And the book is The First Female Pharaoh. Um, and Andrew Collins is the amazing author. And if this doesn't set your your antenna to twitching and saying there's something more here, I don't know what, what possibly could. So thank you so much, Andrew. This has been a fascinating show. Well, thank you, Barbara, and thank you, Mark, as well, in the background there. Uh, I appreciate uh, coming on the show, and I appreciate you having, obviously, you know, gone through the book and, you know, the, the excitement that you bring to the table with relating to the story. Oh, it's it's, it's fascinating. I just, um, I, I don't want you to let it drop because there's so much more here, obviously. And the labyrinth, the labyrinth alone, um, when, when, I, when I read that she was calling it, they were calling it the labyrinth, it was, you know, I, I suddenly sat up straight and said, well, wait a minute, there's something more here then. It's it's not just rubble. It's not there's something there's something that hasn't been uncovered here. So um, mm-hmm. I, well, yeah. I, I mean, it's, you it's, know, it's, I mean, Herodotus uh, visited the labyrinth. He's you know the earliest person that we know that actually witnessed and wrote about it was Herodotus, um, the so-called father of history in Greek tradition. He was there yeah. in about 400 BC. He described this as more magnificent than the pyramids of Giza, more magnificent, he said, than the, 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 the temples of Greece. And he said that it was bigger, a bigger complex than all of the main temples of Greece put together. Uh, and he basically implied that there was as much underground as, as there is above ground. Um, yeah, and that's, that, that's... You know, beneath ground there were temples of crocodiles. He, he claimed that there were, you know, kings buried there and all sorts of stuff. That's 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 what I was feeling that that there were underground tunnels of some sort there, um, but you know that that's I guess for for the future to discover. Um, thank you again. I I know your time is so precious, and I'm so grateful to you for sharing it with us. And um, I I'll probably follow this a lot more closely because um, I think there's something else there. So um, brilliant. And it, it will be it will be uncovered in time because she definitely is not going anywhere. Indeed, indeed. <laughs> so thank you, right, thank you okay. again. Well, all right, we'll, yeah, start. well I, thank I, you. And if people are interested in this, just come on to andrewcollins.com. 
there's more material. I've just finished a an article, um, probably a two to three part article, which I'm going to be putting out to various magazines on the subject. Uh, so watch out for those. Um, and um, yeah, I mean, you know, let's hope that there are some developments in this story. But obviously, to catch up, obviously, do read the book. I'd appreciate if you can do that. Um, and obviously, keep up with all my other work, which is my other hat, of course, is exploring all of the great discoveries coming out of southeast Turkey at the moment, at places like uh-huh. Gebekli Tepe, Karahan Tepe, and the origins of... Just delivered the book on that. Well, well, we will definitely keep up with you. And thank you again. I'll let you go. And um, everybody, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, this book is just, it's its a must-read. You can't put it down. It's more like a no—it's more like a novel than actual history, and uh, I promise you, you will not regret reading it. Do check in with us tomorrow. Uh, we have the uh, the the biography of Dr. Seuss, which is again another fascinating book, but um, doesn't quite hold a candle to this one. So, thank you so much for joining us, and we will see you tomorrow. Bye bye now.